Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. You know, my co-host Dan Cav and I, James, uh, we love our gear. Man, if you could have seen our garage when we lived together post-divorce the first time, um, it was like a music store. Our basement, our studio was full of gear. You know, we love gear. We love the tone that that gear creates. And we're most interested in the nuts and bolts of sonic creation, right? If, if, if you want to hear some good music stories, stay tuned. If you want to hear how that music was created, then this is the podcast for you. And lastly, we do this podcast so our wives don't have to suffer the endless bullshit when we get together and do nothing but talk about guitars. So this week's guest is a really, really special one for us. He's UK-born, New York-bred, started with jazz fusionist Ronald Jackson, went on to a prolific career with Living Color. He founded, co-founded the Black Rock Coalition, played with countless legends like John Medeski, Jack Bruce, Roots, Jagger. Of course, you only need one word to know who Jagger is. Uh, Janet Jackson, Santana, Public Enemy, B.B. King. I mean, the guy has shared the stage with everyone. He's a producer. He's a musical director. And I know him more as just being an all-around pretty amazing dude. Welcome to the podcast, Verna Reed. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. What's up, man? What's up, James? What's Thanks up, for Dan? coming. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Uh, talking about the... the uh, the obsession, the uh, <laughs> I, I'm 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 in my audio man cave, surrounded by stuff, and uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty wild, you know, from the latest and greatest to, you know, I actually got something. Everybody, anybody that's that's about gear, basically, reverb. <laughs> you got to be careful. All I got to say is reverb. <laughs> and uh, reverb is our pusher. Oh man, <laughs> you know reverb is uh, it's it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to dwell and to uh, you know to uh, to to uh, what you to browse. It's a dangerous oh, yeah. place to browse. I'm looking at a Univox Les Paul copy that basically has these um, pickups. That from the seventies, it's a guitar from the seventies. You know, yep. and it's like a butcher block, you know, the classic butcher block, yep. uh, maple. And the reason I got this guitar is because you know I had a my first electric guitar was a Univox Mosrite copy. Oh wow, yeah. love those! And I tell you something, from what I remember, is that the pickups were amazing. The pickups had this incredibly sweet sound really the neck pickup really fun and 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 in fact you know no big no big whoop but you know like those guitars sounded great through the univox 112 it's a low wattage jam so maybe maybe 15 watts whatever uh but i saw one of these um uh that guitar been traded years ago i don't have i haven't had it and forever but i saw this and i was like yo man let me let me let me, let me go this is about 500 bucks 
Let me go check it out, man. And it turns out these pickups are really pretty interesting. They're the beautiful, just the, you know, wait, like lipstick pickups have this incredibly sweet sound. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're low volume, right? They're, they're hard to work with in that sense. But the, the, there's nothing like the silver, silver tone pickups have, have got this awesome tone to them. And, and these are, these, they, and you'll know the Univox humbuckers because they have like a clear, they have like a ring around them, and they are, have a they have a, a clear plastic, so you can see through to the coils. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's it's a anyway. That's just one of many. Yeah. Things. Well, we're, we're gonna get into them. You know, we're both lovers of um, of Asian import. 70s and 80s guitars oh. those oh, the, lawsuits. Law, the lawsuit joints yeah the oh, lawsuits dude. and the pre-lawsuits uh-huh. even there are some post-lawsuit guitars that are pretty damn good so let's let's back up because you already got into your first instrument but one of the first things we love to ask is mm-hmm. you know we always hear the story of the first time someone saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, right. Or kiss on Tom Snyder or, you know, insert band on famous TV show that Mm -hmm. made you want to play. But what's the first time you looked at a guitar and you saw a guitar that made you go like shiver, like, Ooh, I got to do that. Okay. The first, well, you know, really, I would have to probably, it would probably have to be, seeing Jimi Hendrix because I heard Santana before I before I actually saw him like I I was influenced by hearing their cover actually it was it was a cover of Peter Green's song Black Magic Woman and and Carlos's guitar just really struck me as a being just a particularly individual sound like his tone was, you know, of course I've heard guitar and records or whatever. His tone was something else. But the first time I saw Jimi Hendrix on uh, television, it was, and it was probably the Joe Boyd produced a film about Jimi Hendrix. Mm. And, um, oh man, that was amazing. And it was, and it was probably him playing either playing Johnny B. Good or something, you know, with a white strat. Beautiful, you know. Um, and weirdly enough, though, um, as this is a, a a a a certain amount of time before I start to play the guitar, and at that point, I'd actually the Strat was not my first thing that I wanted to you know to get you know what I mean mm-hmm. I, I, because because Hendrix was so identified it was such a thing that I actually kind of avoided Strats at first because it was almost like. At that point in the 70s and 80s, you know, it was almost like, oh, you want to be like Hendrix. It was kind of projected, right? you know, was projected, you know, uh, on to, uh, uh, you know, and it's also like one of my early heroes is Ernie Isley, you know, and Ernie Isley, you know, to me, um, I, you know, actually seeing Ernie Isley, the Isley brothers on television, he's seeing him play Who's That Lady and seeing Who's That Lady when it was a hit. That's the thing of, about the Isley Brothers. Like, nobody has, there's no band that's had the career of the Isley Brothers. Like, the oh, length no. of it from the late 50s to the current day, it does, that, you know, I mean, they were in the game really before the Stones. 
we're, yep. we're, we're in the game. And the fact that Jimi Hendrix had been in the band and the fact that the younger brother, Ernie Isley resurrected the Isley brothers. Like he actually brought them, because they were an act that started in the late 50s. And he, wound, oh, and, he and he played the bass on It's Your Thing. And he was like 12 years old. That's like his first session was playing the bass part on It's Your Thing, which became a monster hit for them. At 12. At 12 years old. At 12 years old. And and the thing, the, so like Ernie Osley to me, like that dude, because that's like, you know, again, the strap, but that's also like, you know, the big muff. You know, that's like the first, that, that fuzz box that really kind of, you know, and I always wanted, you know, I always... I think that was Fripp's vibe too, but I could be mistaken about that because, right. you know. But um, so you didn't want, the, so you didn't want the Strat. Had you seen the Ventures? Is that why you gravitated towards the Univox Mosrat copy? Well, you know, it was the guitar I could afford to. You know, I was I, it, my motivation was. You know, my my parents were really not thrilled that I was becoming a uh, kind of a guitar fanatic okay uh, and um, it was my motivation to get my first job you know working a local supermarket nice. working the soda aisle in the summertime which is the worst possible job you can have <laughs> is being a stock boy at a supermarket and having to work the soda aisle in the summertime is the worst job. <laughs> Just replenish, replenish. Oh my God! There's no relaxing. Like you just, I just put three cases of ginger ale and Seven Up. What are you telling me? You know what I mean? It's like it, it was, it was brutal, brutal. And was this brutal. in Brooklyn? This is in Brooklyn. This is in Brooklyn. What neighborhood you grew up in? I grew up, I grew up on, on the edge of uh, of Bed Stuy, but mainly in Crown Heights. Okay, mainly Crown Heights. So it was, it was I, my first job was at Bernstein Brothers. On Empire Boulevard. Shout out. You know what I mean? And and that was before, you know, um, AMP and the, you know, it's funny because they were like little supermarket stores, right? Yep. They were independent. They were actually they were independent. all independently. It's owned. just like it's just like it's exactly like the mom and pop music stores. It's just like the 48th Street. They were all kind of independent entrepreneurs. Yep. And and then the consolidation started to happen on the street. Like suddenly Sam Ash had a couple of stores and all of that sort of stuff. But that, you know, if it all starts off as independent comic book shops. Yep. It was all independent Record things. stores. Yeah. Record shops, yep. you know, all of those things. And then the rise of the conglomerate, you know, like suddenly you were getting your records at Sears. You know what I mean? Sam yep. Goodies. You know, like there's a whole thing that 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 went on but back in the days you know it was like you know these have shoe repair places right like how many places still have like neighborhood shoe repair spots like yeah. this <laughs> you know what no, I mean? it, it, we, we saw it dan and i both like you grew up in brooklyn and, mm -hmm. and we saw it and once once the chains started coming in then even the mom and pop grocers had to join co-ops right they had to right. they had to band together and that's why things like iga started you know the independent grocers associations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's amazing you know, because they needed that to stay competitive to be able to buy as a group 
Um, the music retailers had to do the same thing and they do now. I mean, uh, uh, one of our biggest group of customers is, is a group like uh, George's Music and Kenny Stanton Music and Chicago Music Exchange. Mm-hmm. And they all belong to a group that so that they can compete at the, at the very highest level. Chicago it's Music the- Exchange, let me tell you something. That's, like, <laughs> that's where you want to get your gong or you want to get your tambura, that's the place to go in Chicago. That place is insane. I it's go and insane. stare it's, at that it's, wall it's of Les Pauls. It's in, it's completely nuts. Oh yeah, uh, another dangerous place to visit. <laughs> so you talked about you, you had that uh, the Univox, the High Flyer. Um, yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go. I had a uh, I owned one of the basses for a little while, and I did have one of the guitars briefly, but I had a bad neck. I uh-huh. still want to get one again. They're they're fantastic. I love them. Um, oh yeah. So those that was your first guitar was your first amp that univox yeah i think my first amp my first amp was one of the univox transistor transistor amps you know i wasn't going to have a a tube amp until much later in my life cycle Mm -hmm. uh but you know it was a very um it's all wrapped up with meeting cats in high school and just a bunch of really wonderful young musicians and players that that just uh i mean that i think about that guitar i mean i think about it as you know that was me starting to become um you know connected to the life to the life of being a musician you know it's uh absolutely yeah the the gear at the same time you know like i i think i think i'm trying to think what my first might have been an mxr distortion plus you know, that might have been my first fuzz box, one of many. I remember when I got, when I, when I remember my life utterly changed when the rat came out. I mean, I'd already been in the mix, you know, um, but the rat was the Proco rat because Proco was a cable company. Proco, that was, that was what's so weird about when the rat came out is that they made a uh, guitar cable. So it was just strange that they would, suddenly branch out and not just branch out, but make an amazing distortion. An iconic pedal. Iconic. I mean, yep. I, I actually uh, had a, the big square, the big, almost a cube. Yep. And, and that, that distortion, that rat was with me for many years. And in fact, the cult of, cult of personality, that was the distortion. You know, it was playing an ESP through that through that through that box and um yeah man that was became my uh my jam well now now we jumped into the tone of it on the song cult of personality you know the one thing i always loved about your guitar tone on i mean you, you talked a little bit earlier about guys like hendrix and guys like santana right yeah. i mean mm-hmm. that dude picks he could pick up any guitar and yeah. it sounds like him. Yeah. You know, following your career, my enti- almost my entire, you know, adult life, your your hands are the same way. Um, but the specific how what did you use for your tone for that for that song? Because you had the rat, you had your ESP, but there was a major I mean, there was a major reverb on that that 
I mean, it just sounds like five room mics. Oh yeah. Well, that's Ed. <laughs> I give I give that to, to Ed. That was uh, yeah. That was that was uh, him. Uh, that was on the production side yeah, from him. Um, it was a hodgepodge of amps. There was a there was a Fender Showman. There was a, nice. maybe a JCM eight hundred. There was a, a twin. There was I had my um, my uh, Seymour Duncan uh, amp, which actually I got one. Where is it? Dean Mar- no, no, no. Dean Markley. Sorry, my bad. Oh, my the Dean Markley. Dean Markley. Yeah. The Dean Markley is like a hidden. I'm in a fog, but the Dean the Dean Markley amp. I used that all through. Uh, my time period playing the CBGBs, you know, that was a phenomenal. I, I recently found one. I've been searching for um, DR150. It's a DR150, you know, it's uh, 112. And I just think it's a, it's, it's not a boutique, considered boutique, but it's got this incredible drive channel. Incredible. I mean, really unique, uh, very thick, overdrive channel so um i just got found one and, and uh had it rehabilitated you know so you doing are you doing the you gotta gotta sort of reacquire all the shit you wish you'd never got yeah, rid well, of that, well those two pieces are you know, those two pieces are kind of it i mean you know if i if i'd have been in my right mind I'd, I'd have just started buying up vintage guitars i only have i have a couple of guitars that are considered vintage i do have uh, a, an amazing 345. I have a 345 that was made the year I was born. It was made in 58. And and I got this guitar. The story of how I got this guitar is is crazy. You know, um, we were making, we were in LA and we were working on, we were making a, a Time's Up, the second Living Color record. And we were yeah. recording at A&M Studios. And at one point, you know, we had we were kind of um, at all my ESPs. I hadn't I hadn't switched over to Hamer just yet. Had my ESPs, and I wanted to get a couple of other instruments, and um, and went to Norm's Rare Guitars, mm-hmm. and they had this three forty five, and it had a busted baritone because mainly. You know, a lot of times the very tone switch is the little tone switch, capacitor switch. You know, a lot yeah. of times they don't they don't work. And so I had a busted veritone and the salesman, it was from 1968. So he, you know, we went back and forth and he quoted me a price. And it was probably like twenty five hundred bucks, something like that. Wow. Back then, wow. Yeah, it was it was it was yeah, you know, but it was sixty eight, you know, whatever. And he went to to do the paperwork and he looked at the guitar serial number and you know they say you know the color drained from someone's face mm-hmm. <laughs> like this dude went ghost white because it turns out the serial number is the guitar is from 10 years earlier it was from 1958 and it had patent applied for pickups so it had real pickups it had it had for real paths, and I'll never forget this. He said, "I can't. I I gotta talk to you know 
I have to talk to Norman, right? And and it was really interesting. Norm came out, and he was very formal about this. He said, Norm said, the deal was made in good faith, and the deal will stand. Wow. That's, and that's an honorable man. He was an honorable dude. And, you know, I mean, last time I had it appraised was at Mandolin Brothers, you know, RIP to one of the great guitar stores, you know, and, and right in your backyard too. Right in my backyard. And, uh, and Stan and Stanley said, Oh yeah, he, he appraised it at, at around, you know, at a, at a, I'll, I'll just say at a five figure, um, price. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it was, a, but it was, it was wild. And I, and I, I remember saying to Norman, I said, please don't fire the salesman, you know, cause he just looked <laughs> terrified. I said, no, he's fine. Don't worry about it. He's you know what he uh he's seen a lot more come and go and he knows that uh he knows that you'll remember that and you know what even better you'll plug his store for decades to come on and i actually and i have it's it is it is one of those kind of guitar under the under the bed type of stories you know um yeah so yeah but that's like pretty much that i have and i have an sg uh a 70s sg that um, that Leroy Aiello, uh, who was associated with Mandolin Brothers, Leroy Aiello, one of the most brilliant um, forensic luthiers, yeah. and 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 repairman, and and he's the guy they call when somebody is going to buy a Les Paul for six figures. He's the guy they call to go into the control cavity. And date the pots and, and check date the, the pots, wires. Date the pots and the wires, but also check for the chisel marks in the chisels that were made. He takes, you know what I mean? He yeah. goes in and looks at the cavity itself because it turns out that there are a couple of forgers that get, they get all the right pots, they get all, and he caught a guy and he, got, he caught a guy, I think the guitar was going to be sold to Slash, was, was what I recall. Caught a guy, everything was, the serial number, everything was good. And Leroy said, he looked at the, at the, the compartment and he said, they didn't use chisels like that. They didn't have the chisels, the, he looked at the, the he said the chisels, <laughs> chiseling was wrong. And that's how they caught this. They wouldn't have caught him otherwise. That's, That's crazy. Awesome. Oh yeah, like he, he was telling he was telling me that um, you know the the great guitar, the fool. That's how I got into the graphics, right? That's like Clap. Right. The guitar was owned by Clapton, you know what I mean? But also owned by Todd Rundgren. Yep. Yep. You know, when I saw Todd Rundgren play uh, 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 Don Kirsch's rock concert, you know, the two things I remember he had like a, an aluminum space suit. <laughs> a tinfoil spacesuit, and he was playing this amazing SG, and it was the fool, right? Yep. Turns out uh, that Leroy says to me, "You know that they can't really authenticate. They're not. There are at least two other guitars that were painted exactly for you know. There are a couple of forgeries that look exactly like the fool, so they're not quite sure which one is the real one." Oh wow. It's wild stuff. And say so that was your so that was your inspiration 
for graphics guitar for graphics I'm, and yeah ultimately you i mean you innovated that as far as i'm concerned you innovated that at least in modern times well you know that the 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 the, the finish on the cult guitar I, also interesting to say this you know the the cult guitar and that rat are currently at the smithsonian institute um they're 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 maybe putting it you know, there's an African American history museum, yeah. and and they're doing a thing where they're doing a new exhibit, and um, you know, Living Color is part of the permanent collection, and they kind of turn things over, you know, and um, and I submitted it to be part of the exhibit, so that's pretty. God bless. That's awesome. That's huge. It's really that's amazing. Wild, right? And um, there's I think there's going to be an induction ceremony, and I'm hoping to get. Um, Matt Massandero from ESP to, to come out and uh, be part of the celebration. Awesome. Which is really, which is really good. And that, and, and that original rat pedal. So I should maybe reach out to Procon, let them know. Absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. yeah cool. So, so we, we jumped ahead and we talked about. Yeah, I'm, I'm very your... nonlinear that way. Oh, <laughs> no, so we all are. Don't worry away. about it. We'll go back uh, and forth. It's it's unavoidable uh, when we have these conversations, but uh, because you mentioned ESP, like when yeah. when did you make the switch to ESP? What was it that uh, that made you go to an ESP? Well, they were the first. Well, they were they were the first guitar company that gave me. Um, ah, you know what? I, I have to say that I have to stop that because actually, interestingly enough, I used I played a Steinberger. Guitar when I was playing with with uh, with Chan and Jackson, and I had one of the original small bodies, and in fact they had carabiner. They had, he had embedded carabiner hooks <laughs> into the body. Oh no right? way! And the and the straps, you know, I mean, like, yeah. So you had to have a carabiner, and in fact, I wound up trading that guitar with Ned Steinberger to get one of the early Steinbergers that had a body. Yeah, like the the yep. full body one. Yeah, because he because he 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 really wanted. Uh, he didn't have any of the originals. He didn't have any of the originals, and and he asked me if if I would be so kind as to maybe trade with him, you know. And I said sure, you know. And uh, yeah, because that's like a that's like a it's like a prototype. It was like a prototype at the time. But in terms of like um, your more standard guitar. Um, scene ESP was the first company to get that gave me an endorsement deal, and that really happened um, in '86. In '86, and and that was kind of a, a demarcation about the Living Color made it made a shift. Like we made we made a shift at that point. I made a shift at that point, and. Um, you know, I have a great deal of affection for the New York, you know, it was a Japanese company that had a New York satellite office, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, and one of the people that I, I, I think of when I think of ESP is, you know, Paul Skelton, um, Paul Skelton from, from, from Austin, Texas, who was actually a, an excellent singer, songwriter guy. He's kind of a legend from uh, in the Austin music scene. And but he was their quality control, and he was their uh, luthier repairman, and um, he was just a great dude. And uh, 
and uh, he basically he had this one strum he had this one strum quality control thing so he would get a box of these guitars and he would open them up and he would hold up and he would get he would strum he'd just strum <laughs> one chord and he would decide if it was if it was worth his time to set it up <laughs> so you go strum piece of shit strum uh, I can work with that. Strum, you know, <laughs> he would have these pile of guitar. I actually happened to be there when he had a pile of these things, and he just went through them and he strummed them <laughs> one time, and he would either send them back to Japan or he would work on them. And um, awesome. he took care of me and took care of those guitars, and and uh, you know, he's someone I, I think about a lot. Yeah, but that was uh, those yeah. are the wild and woolly days of New York in the eighties. Of which we don't have to even get into too many specifics, yeah, <laughs> and no uh, sure. you know, and that's you know, and that was a, just a wonderful crew of people. Uh, uh, you know, Steve Friedman. You know, uh, the lunatics basically ran the asylum. You know, it was all oh, the the music industry, the musical instruments industry back yeah. then was the wild west. Yeah. Richie Richie Fliegler and yep. uh, and Night Bob, <laughs> Night all Bob. these all these characters, man. You know. Yeah, it was it was a wild time, man. But they they um they were great to me, you know. And um, so what made you move on to Hamer? Well, you know, I you know basically Living Color had 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 blown up, and and things were really changing. Basically, the old gang. Uh, what happened was that. Um, you know, I was there when Matt Mastin, Matt Massendero was brought in. I mean, ba essentially, what happened was, uh, you know, they essentially brought in a new manager because you know it was. I just put it like, things had gotten a little. They just needed to anyway. They were they were changing things there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Matt came in, and Matt was cool, you know, but. I think Paul was splitting. It was like, you know, Richie was playing. Richie was playing uh, in the band. Like Spinal Tap was going on tour, so they they had actual band. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So it was kind of like the old gang was leaving, and um, and uh, and then basically I got approached uh, by Joel Danzig. Joel, you know, and. Um, yeah. And um, and I was just in a in a place where I was ready to look at other things. I was ready to look at other things. It was, I mean, there was a few, you know, it was it was um, it was it was just the way he 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 talked to me and said, "Hey, man, like it was kind of like the old gang was breaking up, so it wasn't the same. It was about to change." Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. And. You know, Paul was bouncing. You know what I mean. And um, on well, Hamer at that point was not only on fire. I mean, yeah. when 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 you're building guitars that's inspiring luthiers like Paul Reed Smith yeah. to start building, you know, you have something magical, right? Yeah, man. It, it's it it was it was an incredible American company. And the things they were doing with Rick Nielsen, the things that they were doing with Steve Stevens, you know what yep. I mean? It was just, it was it was a, something um, to be a part of. And 
I remember Joseph saying, "Would you mind if we took just took a listen to your your the potent guitar, right?" He said, so "Sure." And he he and he and he actually he took it and he and he sent it back to me and he says to me, he says, "You know, this is a was really interesting." He said, "That is a great guitar." So like, it's a really great guitar. I want I want to give me a shot at building a guitar at least as good as it. You know, how do you say That's no cool. to that? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I have to give him respect because of the fact that he he didn't come at it from a, an upselling or a kind of well, you know, this guitar's got ah rah 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 rah. You know, he didn't. Right. He actually gave a. I said, man, that guitar is special. He 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 was straight ahead about it. You know, I knew yeah. it was special, but it was interesting to to hear it from a competitor to talk about a product and give it the respect that it deserved. So then he built um, the first Hamer custom chaparral, the yin yang. And I never looked back. It was, nice. it was so, I mean, it just was, I mean, that's the, you know, that guitar um, has been with me at that point more than even, you know, cause, cause, even more than the Colt guitar um, with the Kulik finish. Yep. And then we just made a series of guitars that just were, for me, I mean, you know, the E equals MC squared, the Malcolm X, the, you know, like all these different things, you know, the, uh, uh, they, they just were um, so special. How many of them do you still have? Oh, I have my, I have five. My five favorites, my five, you know, nice. the Tony Fitz, the Tony Fitzpatrick Miss Voodoo, phenomenal guitars. I mean, it's an actual painting. Yeah. Um, the Trout, which is like, it, it was kind of a sunburst that went wrong, but I love it. You know. <laughs> um, uh, e equals MC squared. I actually have a guitar that um, has a, an autograph from Mr. BB King on it. Oh. Um, and, and and I and I had a chance to work with him as a co-producer, you know, with Mr. Wow. King, and um, and he and he uh, he signed this guitar, and uh, it's one of my most prized, you know, possessions in life. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's pretty, you know. Also, also, um, relativity, aka the E equals M C square. You know, um, that's a phenomenal uh, instrument. And, and the making of it was really phenomenal. And the other thing about it is, you know, that's the, this guitar had E equals MC squared in, emblazoned on the on the neck. And the original neck was ebony. But, you know, ebony can be kind of, so ebony's a very tricky thing to have on a fingerboard. You're, you're much better off with a rosewood than yeah. ebony, really. And I, and I basically, I loved it, but I was having such intonation problems that um, they actually made it a second neck, uh, the same neck with e equals MC squared, but in rosewood. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild, pretty wild. So I know Dan has been itching to start to, to talk to you about your Parkers. Oh, uh, yeah. Parker? The par yeah, the Parker scenario, you know, that that is so... So so what so what happened is like it's just kind of like I would have never left Hamer. Um, I would have never left Hamer, and and essentially what happened was, 
Hamer got um, acquired by Command Music, which is the ovation. (laughs) Which was my, so that's about when I came in. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and, um, you know, um, Hamer, the company, they, you know, they were an Illinois company. Yeah. I mean, they were a Midwest, their ethos, their culture, if you will, was a Midwestern culture. Mm -hmm. And when they moved the company. To about 10 miles from my house right here in Connecticut. When they moved it. They they changed the mojo. They changed the essential chemistry, and I mean it was deep. I mean they basically they offered to relocate. People. It was kind of like they said, "Hey, we're making this move. You know, if you want to come with us, you know, we will help you with the relocation. If you're not right. coming with us, it was kind of go with God, you know, and um, and really it just shifted. And I think uh, Frank. And Joel didn't agree, you know, about the, you know what I mean? And they yep. were a kind of marriage, you yep. know what I mean? And Frank Untermars, I mean, I mean, the cat was a lawyer. He was, a, he was ridiculous. I mean, the mind, he's, he had a mind like, you know, he was, he was a certified public accountant. He was a law, he was, had a degree, he had a degrees in accounting, he had a degree as an attorney, mm. right? Which he passed the Illinois bar, and he was, I think, an MBA, right? He was a bananas, right? But he's running a, a guitar company, right? Yeah. And, and I think um, division and dollars and cents were on a collision course. They just, just yeah. uh, were on a collision course, and um, and for me, it was just, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was Joel leaving it was like, I, you know, it's, it was a very weird. Sad thing, you know. Yeah. And no, it definitely it seemed to, uh, you know, from everybody within the company that you know I hear from, it definitely shifted. It changed. It still had uh, it had a new good thing, right? Yeah. But it wasn't the old thing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that. It wasn't that thing. It was like kind of. It was a different. You know, it was a different. Because. Uh, Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. Hamer went from Chicago to Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. Into the Ovation Factory right. and had like sort of a new life after that. Um, but when Fender bought the company, mm-hmm. and I had actually, I came in just a couple of years after that. When Fender had bought the company and then Fender was running that factory, Mm-hmm. And then also building some Fender acoustic guitars there. Mm-hmm. We're, we're building Fender, Ovation, and Hamer. Mm-hmm. Ovation had a complete change right. and sort of another, it, it was almost like one life had ended and another life began. Exactly. Exactly. Bands and companies and stores and ventures of all kinds have life cycles, you know? Yeah. They have their gold. They have their golden ages. They have their times where everything is in balance, and they have their times a key person can leave, and it may not even be someone that's an obvious key person, right? Um, that person leaves, and then suddenly everything goes sideways. For me, you know, Parker, I, I felt very. Uh, I felt it was a little adrift, 
You know what I mean? If it felt like, and um, because also Joel's still building these guitars, but he's building like really kind of, um, you know, he's kind of building very high end, very you know, like he was, he was do he was not doing custom chaparrales. You know, he wasn't doing. No, he's doing uh, very. He's doing a lot of the similar Monaco. Um, like the more single cutty, some of the double cutty, some of the yeah. hollow bodies, a lot of the arch tops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's yeah. building some gorgeous guitars. Oh, his, his guitars are phenomenal. You know, yeah. he's, he's building um, really wonderful instruments. I mean, it's a different, it's a different space. It's not. Yeah. It's 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 not a. You know, it's not a Floyd Rose scenario, right? You know? It's it's not what you were playing. It's a stock, it's a stock tail piece scene, right? Yeah, completely, and, completely. And, Good um, way to put it. And then, um, you know, I, so another we, like sort of family oriented company yeah. comes comes knocking, and and now now you're talking to Parker. Yeah, now I'm talking to Parker, and in fact, I ran into Ken Parker. Um, um, at one of the NAMs, or one of the many NAMs, and he's like, mm -hmm. I really like to, you know, let's let's do something. And, and in fact, I had gotten a prototype early on from the beginning of the of the Parker company. But you know, the, their, their their guitars are very specific. It's a very specific tone palette, very specific shape, and it was kind of like not going to be my main my main thing. It, di it didn't really cross over into what I was doing with Hamer until, um, you know, I, I uh, hooked up with Jody Dankberg, you know, uh, over at, you know, and, and, and that's because U.S. Music Corp had taken, you know, it was basically had Aria, you know, and Washburn. Yep. And um, Hagstrom. Yep. You know, and Randall. And Parker was all part of this thing, and they basically had people man that managed the the various brands, managed the various brands, and they had a really great, you know, uh, Jody Dankberg. You know, he was a very he listened to players. He was very he was very you know, and he was saying, you know what, we're gonna do, we're doing this guitar, the Dragonfly, and we're changing the body style. We've got a new body style coming in. And want you to check it out, and and I it's a very subtle shift from the you know the fly, from the normal Parker fly thing, right? But the shift made the guitar credible as a rock instrument for me. And the other part of it was that it turns out that they had Terry Atkins. Terry Atkins worked for. Hamer, and it happened in conversation. We said, "Yo, man, this is guy Terry Atkins did a great job." I said, "Oh, yeah, Terry Atkins works for me." And I was like, "What? Nice, you know." And so the, there fami was a, the familiarity a, was there. Familiarity and continuity, and um, yeah. and uh, and um, again, not a lot of people building guitars in the Chicago area. So. Yeah, and uh, again, you know. Um, I, I love that I have a, a Dragonfly prototype. It's, it's beautiful. Um, I really liked where it was going. They were building things, whatever I wanted, and 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 then they had a they had a they first the first sign of trouble 
was they had a contratemps with Fernandez because Fernandez had a had a guitar called the Dragonfly, and 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 so they were like, well, we're gonna call it the 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 Max Fly, and I was like, uh. <laughs> you know, and that was the beginning of a series of, and then and then they they uh, basically it was U.S. Music Corp. They downsized uh, my dude Jody Dankberg. They downsized him. And um, and then they started doing stuff like uh, just it, in other words, it was you got to have guitar people or people that respect guitar people in the mix. Mm-hmm. And yeah. once it became a situation where they were downsizing people and then giving people too much work, like you know, like essentially. Um, you know, it was just funky, man. You know, Jody was there, and his wife was there, and and they downsized him. She came on. She was great. And then they had a blessed event. They got pregnant, and then she got she took her maternity, and they didn't hire her back. They brought somebody, you know, not them TMI, but you know, they 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 brought in a, a guy, a guy who's really good dude, man. Um, uh, Joey O, he's a good guy. Yeah, Got, Joe, he's with Dunlop now. Yeah, Joey is dope, but Joey was in charge of five brands. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it became yeah. it became a kind of almost untenable situation, yeah. and it got to a point where I mean, I, the Parker name, the Parker brand, is in uh, is in like limbo, yeah. as far as yeah. I can tell. I it mean, is. So it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the behind the scenes for everybody. Here's the scoop. Um, so that's when I got involved mm-hmm. and we ended up merging us music and, and KMC music. Um, and it's funny because we were at the launch sales meeting and we were told right before the presentation, when we were about to present Parker to the entire sales force mm-hmm. that, you know what, we've decided to, to shelve Parker and and I went, wow, okay. So, you know, a week later, we finally had a chance to sit down and I went, what was all that about, right? We were ready for this. We right. were ready because I was selling those when Korg was distributing them. Right, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. Um, so here, here's the issue. All of the overseas production, it they couldn't get a factory that could actually do the bake light thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the composite. And, and yeah. Well, it, it, it's this crazy baking, like they put this sheet of composite and then mm-hmm. you have to bake it and it, it conforms to the wood. And the, the, the QC was just a nightmare and, mm-hmm. and the, the failures were a nightmare. Yep. And then the biggest kicker was they couldn't at the, on the U.S. side, could not build them for the same price that they used to. It got down to the point where the process and the materials boosted the U.S.-made guitars to such an expensive level mm. that it was impossible to continue. Otherwise, you, the guitars would be so ridiculously expensive, nobody would buy them. And mm. and they kind of hit this, they had a conundrum of, we've got a beautiful 
name brand, but we just, we can't, it's not sustainable. And I was bummed because I was a fan of the guitars. I've always wanted one, which you may not even know, James, but yeah, I've, I've always wanted them. Um, and one of the things that made me want them was seeing Vernon Reed playing. Oh them, man. Yeah, which is yeah. why I, uh, I had spoken to James earlier and, you know, before you were came on and, uh, I was saying I was very interested in how you ended up on Parker. Yeah, you know, I, I actually it's a it's a such an interesting, uh, interesting uh, story. I have a, a friend named Jason McNamara, who's a who's a, a guitar guy. You know, he actually was he was you know was in retail, and he's Australian, and. But he also is bilingual. He's Japanese. He's fluent, fluently in Japanese. And I met him on a. That's a that it would be a whole other podcast. How I met uh, Jason. <laughs> I have a feeling we're gonna have to do a, a two parter here. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty insane, but he he turned out to be a, a real mate and um, and. Uh, he was selling. He was working for a guitar shop, one of the big guitar shops. Uh, um, what was what was the town? Um, Brisbane, I believe, Brisbane. And okay. and he he wound up moving to Tokyo. His wife is Japanese, um, and he was in a shop. It's one of the main shops that sells um, PRS. And for a time, so Parker, and and he was like, man, you know what? He was one of the people that said, man, you should think about, you should think about, uh, he talked to me about Parker because he knew Jody. And I had my whole thing with Jody, which is great. And then it, that went all sideways. And I happened to be in Japan, and I was just like, I was like, I am fed up, man. It's just you know, going to pillar to post. And 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 he said, man, well, you know, they handled all the private stock stuff, you know, all the crazy, mm -hmm. you know. And and he basically said, man, you should maybe reach out to Paul. And interestingly enough, I met Paul when he launched PRS. And, and because I was aware of Paul's guitars because of Santana, again, you know, mm -hmm. because that was like his, his breakout artists, were Santana and Jerry Garcia. You know what I mean? That's how that instrument, you know, started really Carlos, you know what I mean? Because uh, mm -hmm. Carlos had played with SGs. He played with the, the, the uh, Gibson um, uh, 6S. Then he had, had this custom Yamaha for a time. And then he started playing with, with, with uh, Paul Reed Smith. And I remember meeting Paul the one time the NAM was in New York, mm -hmm. right? It was in 1985 or something. And, and I think that was his first full year of production. Yeah, yeah. And um, and he's just a good dude. And uh, and we just been keeping tabs on each other over the years. You know, he had built me a McCarty, which got stolen, which is a whole other story. Oh. You know, I have a second McCarty now, which is beautiful guitar. You know, um, and um, and. Uh, and he and he was just open and and you know we started talking about doing Stuart Floyd's and he was down with it and I had actually said would you put a Floyd on you know 
And he said, well, it's kind of a weird thing. And then he did it, and it worked. And, um, and uh, you know, I have uh, the, the Vernon Reed Vela, which is a custom model. Love that guitar. And, yeah, yep. man. And I did the artwork for the little pick guard and... Uh, and you know it's been a it's it's been a funny you know like i did a limited time of being exclusive i'm you know i'm, I'm related to paul reed smith but i play other things um there it's it's been a, it's been a bit interesting ride in terms of the brands that i've owned that i've been associated with you know i like the guitar I practice with at all times is my tom anderson Oh, <laughs> which I one tom, you know tom tom anderson tom anderson guitar works and tom anderson quiet as it's kept makes a fantastic pickup as well oh yeah oh His yeah pickup, yeah with the big with the big pole pieces yep. yeah he's uh he's a he's a bit of a wizard uh, so which anderson which anderson are you playing i'm playing one of these uh let's see i'll just hold it up your camera's off though yeah i know <laughs> ah there we go <laughs> Oh, these guys. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Okay, now spend an hour telling us about all those switches. <laughs> oh God, please no. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but I will, but I will, but I will hold up, but I will uh hold up. So is that a, a cobra? Yes. Yeah. And show you the uh beautiful yeah. for the for the people at home, it was a beautiful blue quilt. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic. oh there's the yin yang. Yeah, man, the classic. This is a personally reliced by me. Nice. Um, but yeah, 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 man, that was. Uh, I gotta give my man, my 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 old tech, Mark Snyder. You know, I think Mark Mark was the one that uh, kind of said, "Man, you should try Tom Anderson," and he, and he sort of talked to Tom, and they, you know, and he got me this thing, and it's so good, man. It builds to a day. If any, anybody out there, you ever find a Tom Anderson, look at the serial number. The serial number will be the date uh, it was built. And then there's an A or a B after it. The A means it was completed earlier in the day. And the B means it was completed later in the day. At least that's how I was taught to sell it back in the day when I used to sell them. <laughs> oh, right. It's on the plate. It's on the back plate. Yep. Let's see, was it an A or a B? It was wow. 95. 95. 820. I think that's an A. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was built in the morning of April 20 or August 20th. Yeah, August 20th, two days before my birthday. Fantastic. Nice. You know? So yeah. So it's it's been a it's been a oh I gotta I gotta show you the uh Univox. Yeah. Just grab that sucker over here. For everyone at home, he's showing us guitars, and you won't be able to see him, so I hope you're very jealous. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yep. Fantastic pickups. Fantastic. That's so rad. Yeah, man. So, you know what? I got it. Man, so many things to cover. I really hope we can do a, a, a part two because we didn't even get to that half half of our normal questions. But, you know, there are a couple of things that I know about your tone, or at least I've inferred about your tone. 
Number one, and I think it comes out because of your jazz background, your lead playing and what comes out of your fingers, which is just as important as the gear that you're playing. Oh, yeah. Is it sounds to me like you are influenced by horn players. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Very much so. And, the, and the, uh, my, my, her- my heroes are, you know, I guess, and I would say Coltrane, Eric Dolphy, and Ornick Coleman to, mm-hmm. to, be, to be those three um, had the most visceral impact on me. You know, uh, particularly like Eric Dolphy with his, in- his whole thing of interval skipping. And, you know, that's like, um, I, I actually have a, you know, Joe DiOrio, the phenomenal jazz guitarist and uh, very innovative cat, you know, he had he put out this book called Intervallic Designs, you know, and it was all about skipping around the neck and using like interval leaps. And that's very relatable to me thinking about uh, the way Eric Dolphy um, just uh, how he created, you know, it's amazing musical shapes on the horn you know what i mean and yeah it, it's just very it's very it's, it's wild because uh rock and roll and jazz and blue you know there's this weird thing where they're they're at odds they're related they're at odds with each other oh yeah you know what i mean and what's interesting is that now so many metal guys are very conversant in jazz you know very conversant in jazz. A lot, and for a lot of people, you know, it's like giant steps, right? Because you know, giant steps is such a bitch, you know. And they're mm. Technically geekily minded, you know, they want to master those changes, whatever, you know. And um, it's very interesting, man. There are quite a few um, players, you know, that I have a great deal of respect. Alex Skolnick, in particular, you know, oh, as, yeah. as, as a as a jazz player, you know, as well as a, you know, he's a metal. You know, he's a metal beast, but, you know, what I love about him is that he, he actually took time off to spend time to study jazz, you know. And, uh, you know, just, you know, he's somebody that um, we, whenever we do, he's so, he's a, he's a, amazing, like, like, redonkulous, you know, like, the level of depth of knowledge of things, but he's such a lovely dude, you know, like, times I've sat with Joe Satriani, Yes. And it's funny because we I used to play with a guy who studied with Lenny Tristano, you know, the great, you know, the blind jazz pianist who played with Lee Konitz. And Joe Satriani took theory lessons, you know, took lesson, music lessons um, uh, from Lenny, you know what I mean? And Lenny would, Lenny would talk about the, uh, how Lenny would know that he hadn't been practicing, you know, just hear, get out of here. Yeah, they come, you know, you know, don't waste my time, you know. Come back when you've practiced. You come back when you learn that shit, you know. He's that guy, you know, and it, it's so funny because I played with the piano player early on who studied with Lenny Tristan. And the, the, the dude was Derek Baines. Derek Baines, man, was phenomenal, dude. You know, for us young guys, like his chordal ideas were just so far above. Our, he was so over our heads, you know. Right. <laughs> He's like, you know, doing the superimposed triads and crap like that. Yeah, I think- man. The most amazing part of all of that is that you were influenced by all these dudes as a teenager, though. Yeah, hearing this stuff, man, it was, well, I started late. You know, the thing about it is about guitars, like, you kind of have to get your reflexes 
instruments are weird. You know, it's kind of like, however you get there, that's what you got to do. And people that start early on, there's a way they approach technique that's just different, fundamentally different, because they've been, the muscle memory that they have is from hours and hours and hours and hours. You know, the way... The way, even the ability to shift chords, and you know, that's something. If somebody started when they're seven years old, you're not messing with them doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But having said that, you know, um, coming into it a little later, it was, I, I was so fascinated by things. It, even as things would be frustrating, I was so fascinated by the different approaches I would hear, and. Um, you know, and it's still an ongoing thing. It's weird, man, to live with this uh, instrument in your life for a long time. It is a very curious um, passion or what have you. Like, I sat down one time with, with um, Keith Richards, and uh, and people don't notice, but Keith Richards, man, you know, he's like, he's got a little gypsy jazz thing. Oh, that yeah. He, that he keeps totally under wraps, you know what I mean? He's a seat. You you turn around and be like what you know play throw down a little Charlie Christian just to let you know he's legit. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's 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 been it's. I have to say, man, I've just been uh, incredibly fortunate to have been around so many inc- extraordinary people from all different walks, all different careers. People mad famous. People that are like on the come up. People that are obscure. I've, I've just been very fortunate. Um, in in uh, having experienced, you know, so many just unique, genius, weirdo people. I love it. I love it. That's, uh, a, as, a, as a little aside, just because you mentioned uh, Eric Dolphy, uh, James may or may not know, I actually started as a flute player. I started as a flute player. Wow. And uh, early on... I had no idea. Yeah. And yeah. I know Dan for like 30 years. Yeah. Um, I actually, the, the last flute that I had, I actually just sold about three years ago. Um, mm. And I keep thinking about picking up another one. Yeah, uh, why not, bro? But it was, uh, it, it's, a, it's a funny thing that you mentioned him because he was, uh, someone introducing me to Eric Dolphy was kind of one of the things that helped me navigate. Uh, I was already into heavier music, punk rock, Mm-hmm. hard rock metal you know from you know 70s classic rock which at the time was just called rock uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was just called now um right. when i started playing uh obviously playing uh in school you're not playing jazz you're not playing uh early on you're not playing jazz you're not playing rock uh i had trouble navigating where i was going to go from being a flute player and starting mm-hmm. to play uh other instruments and that was uh someone approaching me and showing me uh some jazz with a flute in it was one of the game changers for me oh yeah man it was a, it was a critical moment in, in that, music for me yeah, man, Dolphy was phenomenal i mean that's the thing about Dolphy. he was he was a phenomenal woodwinds player i mean he was phenomenal he was an incredible flautist he was a ridiculous i mean obviously alto sax but he was a remarkable clarinetist, bass clarinetist, you know. Um, it's you know, and 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 even the cats like you know, like Yusef Latif, 
you know, Art Webb, who never gets the dap. Like, Art Webb is just, come on. He's like one of the underground, uh, people don't give him nearly enough respect. He's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, man, it, it's uh, music. That was the thing about the 48th Street days, you know, the days of the music districts, you know. There was a great L.A. music district, you know, and... Um, and uh, the death of those districts is, you know, it's a shame because um, there was so much more going on than commerce, you know? I mean, there was the commerce of it, but there were just people were, were uh, clashing, were getting together, were arguing, you know, I mean, all those human things were happening. And it's kind of a, it's a shame that it's, it's, uh, you know that that sort of thing is is um, not ha not happening the way it did. Yeah. So we, man, we, we can talk for so much longer. No, I know, <laughs> and we will. But I got one more. Dan's got one more. Sure. Most importantly, one of the things that always struck me about Vernon Reed was that you, I believe, were influenced from a very similar place that we were, Dan and I both, for a very long time. And we haven't dove into effects. We talked about the rat, yeah. but so, look, when, when I first heard Living Color, it blew my mind. And it blew my mind, not just with your playing and with the feel that you guys had, but it blew my mind because of familiarity and the familiarity mm -hmm. I felt was, was let's just say it, Dr. No. Oh, and, yeah. and, and bad brains was the first hardcore band that I had the pleasure of being exposed to that showed that you can use effects in hardcore. Oh yeah. And, and he came up with some amazing sounds that if you tried to recreate, yeah. they're practically impossible to you do. Know, so let's talk a little bit about Doc No. Dr. And let's no, man. Dr. No is, is, is so, I mean, from the Roar cassette, you know, to, to Rock for Light, to, um, mm -hmm. you know, to Eye Against Eye, you know, just the fact that he had to navigate between this, innovating this hardcore, this super dense, um, I mean, area between punk and metal, you know, and then go from that to dub, for real. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? For real dub. And to do that seamlessly, you know, it, it was so challenging because in the, in the mindset of the do one thing one way mindset, I mean, really... A lot of ways, why Living Color doing a bunch of different styles. You know, it was really each each tune would dictate the approach. And thinking about it honestly, as a person, as a child, I was a child in the '60s, a little kid, right? And the Beatles. The thing about the Beatles is the Beatles had the most radical evolution one of the most radical evolutions of a band in a very short period of time. I mean, I mean, they went from, I want to hold your hand to polyethylene Pam. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
in yeah. like five they, years. They went yeah. from Michelle My Bell to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. When hearing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds the first time on radio, and the DJ was like, "That was the Beatles." I was like, "The," I, I couldn't. You know, I was trying to. I was like trying to assimilate that, right? And they and the thing is, the Beatles, like Hendrix, they were avatars of their era. In other words, they they reflected as they created. They were creating the '60s, and they were responding to the '60s at the same time. That's that's that's. That doesn't happen. That's not happening now. Like, in in, in other words, everything that, that's happened, right, like the Led Zeppelins, the Black Sabbaths, like all of these artists that forged, they literally forged a thing. In terms of forging a thing, they created a kind of... Everybody wanted to imitate what that was, right? Right. Everybody wanted to imitate it and become their version of that thing. And it became a mass-marketed lifestyle. Like, Rockstar became a mass-marketed thing. There was an explosion of bands in the, in the 60s, and even then, it was hard to do certain shit, right? Then the manufacturers came in to make things easier, right? It's yep. easier to recreate the sound of your fit. Like, in other words, if you had to take an electric mistress and a wah-wah pedal and a fuzz box and a phase shifter and do the thing and come up with your settings and there's not, there's not a preset, you, you notch it over here, you put the manual over there, and then you create this weird whatever it is, right? Yep. With you know Tommy Bolin with the Echoplex, Tommy Bolin took the Echoplex and did this thing where he's changing the delay time and the and the feedback and and this was like his thing. This was his thing. He took the Echoplex and the Echoplex became part of his instrument. And I remember Tommy Bolin talking about that like they didn't like it in the James Gang when I did my Echoplex thing. But he 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 figured a way to hack the Echoplex to make it do this totally weird, awesome thing that he was doing. Mind you, nobody was doing that with the Echo, but it was him, right? Well, that, like, you think about it, Adrian Ballou. Adrian Ballou was one of the, one, I mean, for real, for real. Adrian Ballou changed what effects meant. He, he, he changed the meaning of, of guitar effects on Absolutely. a level, right? Yep. Like, there's no Tom Morello without Adrian Ballou, yep. right? You hear you hear Prince on a song like um, All the Critics Love You in New York, the guitar solo on that is a straight tribute to Adrian Ballou. You know what I mean? You, I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy, right? So this evolution, there's this evolutionary things like, uh, you know, like the big mud, like Ernie Isaac being up through a maestro phase shift and that sound became a thing. And then all of a sudden, those things become presets. Those things <laughs> that somebody can craft, that they put these things together to make that thing. You know, look, you know, cats like John Ackerman had an actual Leslie cabinet. 
Yeah, actual, yeah, actual organ cap. He put his guitar through Leslie Cap. You know what that was like for his for his taxes, roadies? It's monstrous. And now you have you don't know how many rotor pedals like right now. <laughs> yeah. Like if you want to sound, you got Jan Ackerman from Focus in the set. That they, you know, they, I I've got five pedals in here. I've got I'm I'm talking about like dedicated to the Leslie thing. Forget about all the presets and stuff. That's what's happened. You know, that's what's happened. You're 100% right. And you know, many people don't know that all, that all goes back. Let's bring it back to the Beatles for a second. Yeah. That all goes back to John Lennon asking Jeff Emmerich to tie him to the ceiling from a rope with from his feet and wanted to spin him around a microphone in the studio to get that effect and jeff emmerich said you're you're daft uh, here's <laughs> what we're gonna do and and he put him through a rotary he put the vocal through the rotary they recorded it through through a leslie speaker mm-hmm. and, and that sound was born if anybody out there hasn't read in our world if you haven't read here, there, and everywhere by Jeff Emmerich, mm. you can hear exactly how all of these effects that the Beatles dreamed up, none yeah. of it existed. So they had to dream up. At one point, again, uh, uh, John Lennon asked Jeff Emmerich to submerge a microphone in a, in a pool of water so that he could sing so it sounded like he was singing underwater. And he said, you're an idiot. I'm going to take a microphone and put it in a condom and drop it in a gla- in a milk jug. And you're going to sing through the milk jug. And that's how that effect was born. If, if you love this stuff like we do, right. you have to read this. Well, you have to have somebody. Well, see, here's the thing, right? You have to have somebody who's, this is the whole point. It's like, you have to have somebody who says something that's wildly impractical. Yeah. And you have to have somebody that can translate this wildly impractical, idiotic thing, but doesn't laugh at it, right? Yeah. But he actually he goes about, he actually goes about to figure out how to create this insanity that this person is coming up with because the very practical person wouldn't come up with that insane shit on their own. Not... They they have the they have to be presented with a problem to solve, right? So they're presented with an issue and a problem, and they go about practically solving it, which is which is different than the person that shoots it down, right? Right. This is like think about that, right? You have to have a certain kind of mindset and personality to go. You know what? Okay. You want I could do this. Say what do it? What do you want me to do? I want to do blah 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 blah. And I, I need a trampoline. Okay, we're not going to get the trampoline. I need to, you know, I need, I need somebody's got to be able to talk <laughs> this person out. I need a trampoline, and I need you to spin the trampoline while I'm singing. Okay, we're not gonna, we're not going to, you know, the insurance. We won't, we won't be able to get insurance. We're not, you're not going to do the trampoline thing. But, and this person creatively is presented with this insanity and creatively figures out a way to do the totally insane and impractical thing in service of the sound. Yep. In service of the sound. The thing that has to be remembered 
is that all of these producers, you know, uh, were all in in knife in their teeth competition with each other, right? Yep. So it's it's kind of like Brian Wilson on the one hand, you know, uh, George Martin on the other hand, but it's also Norman Whitfield, you know. It's it's like all these different people are coming up, you know, um, Phil Spector, the spe oh, yeah. or the or the Spector that is Phil, you know. All of these people are creating in their various laboratories. They're plugging the thing that shouldn't be plugged into that thing, and they're yep. plugging it into that thing anyway. You know, that's the that's the genius of it. Prince, that's, Prince was a genius that way. Oh my God! I mean, the, the Lindrum, the Lindrum, he, like he was the one who actually figured out how to use a Lindrum. You know, like they tuned down Lindrum. He actually yeah, yeah. created a sound with the Lindrum. Like Lindrum was meant to imitate. Well, it doesn't sound like a drum, right? And the drum machines, m machine drumming, has been with us really long time. Because you got to think about the rhythm aces, and you, you know, the early on, like you know, things like uh, Timmy Thomas. Why can't we live together? You know, that's like early electronica, if you think about it. It's a yeah. guy on an organ with a little rhythm ace. And, and, and in fact, that rhythm ace is built into the organ, right? It's built yep. into the actual thing. Yeah. yeah. And he came up with one of the greatest songs about, you know, the, the you know, our disunity, mm -hmm. you know, this incredible heartfelt thing. But he, he's like playing like this kind of little combo thing. And, you know, when, you, when I listen to, um, you know, Why Can't We Live Together, that's a haunting it's a creepy sound. You know, that organ, it's a very lonely, it, it sounds exactly like, you know, um, uh, it sounds exactly like uh, somebody searching for an honest person, <laughs> you know? like That's, a, that's deep, man. I never thought like, about that, but you're right. It sounds like a lonely person in the wilderness, even though it's electronic. It's got this sound. It has, you know, it's it's actually the sound of the question he's asking. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why. Why can't we live together, right? And it's the sound that it's an isolated sound which undergirds his lyric. It totally delivers the sound, delivers the lyric that you're hearing. Yeah. It's it's one of the elements that makes that song indelible. Amazing. No, nice. Agreed. Production, Agreed. production is 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 it's kind of like, well, right now we have standards, and and standards are almost the enemy of of the visionary experience. You're not going to get the visionary experience by doing what other people are doing. That's not going to happen. You can, you you know, like, in 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 other words, professionalism, right? Pro Tools or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. the, I, that, the idea of that as an overgirding principle, you know, you want to, you you know, you you're a professional and you know what you're doing. That mitigates against doing the unexpected thing. The unexpected, you know, like I don't know. Let's see what happens. It mitigates against. Let's see what happens. Right. 
you know, it kind of puts you, you know, being a professional and being in control kind of puts you in a kind of a box. Yeah, for sure. So we, we've talked about a ton and, and there's absolutely going to be a ton more that we need to talk about. So I'd love to try and do this again. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've t- just touched the tip of the iceberg with your just gear and methodology. And so far of the episodes we've done thus far, you're far and away the most prolific. Um, so there's so much more I want to talk about. But my the, the question that I always love that I wait for every time we do these, mm-hmm. because uh, number one, because I can't answer it myself. I would not be able to answer this question. And number two, because it, I know it, it, some people will be able to answer right away. Some people, it puts them in a quandary. But okay. desert island gear, guitar, amp, and a couple pedals. Guitar, what do you boil down to? Guitar, amp, and a couple of pedals. Wow. That's that it is, for the rest of your that's life. That's it. Yeah. Guitar, amp, and a couple of pedals. Um, one guitar. Because <laughs> it's funny, think back, and and you know what? We're blessed. We are we are absolutely blessed, right? With the with the amount of gear that we've acquired, that we've played, that we've sold. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, think back to the days when you owned one guitar and one amplifier and one effect pedal, and that's what we and and we thought we had the world, right? And now we're being asked to go back to just one, what would it be? Well, you know, if it, <laughs> I, would probably, I would probably go, what well, was one? I'd probably take a Helix Stomp. <laughs> ah, that's, <laughs> that's cheating. That's all right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I probably, if I had to take one guitar with me, gosh, that's a, that is a really tough one. I would have to say it would be between my yin-yang and it, and it would be between that and... Um, the prototype of my signature model, the prototype of my signature PRS. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. It's it's a it's it's the it's the guitar that. Okay, you know what? You know what? <laughs> Fun, interesting to say that. Would I take that or would I take my three forty five? Uh, uh, so now you're now you're back up to three. I'm back up to three. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's it is pretty. It's pretty. Uh, one amp, I would I would take my Dean Markley. I would take I my, I would probably take my Dean Markley because um you know you would think I would take one of my rectos. Uh but um it's a beautiful, you know, I mean I, I guess the only thing I would I would say is, you know, if I could have one of each thing and it being in pristine condition, like really in good shape. My Dean Markley, like if it was if it was like like brand new. Is it's a it's a phenomenal sound. It's a workhorse too. Yeah, and um, yeah, I would, I, you know, I probably would want to take the the uh, yin yang for sentimental value. There you go. Yeah. It's, All a, right. it's a great guitar, and it's and, and and it's and it's connected so much to to so much of the parts of my life. Um, that uh, yeah, I would probably do that, and. Um, Mm. Mm. As far as the single effect, I said I said I'd probably probably take a helix time, which I was being somewhat facetious, but um, 
I take my helix. I like where your head is. I take my helix floor. <laughs> <laughs> especially with the latest, especially with the latest firmware update. I tell you, one thing I will say, man, you know, because in terms of the digital modeling space, uh, it's 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 all really wild right now, and um, everybody's really uh, up on this neural network, this neural quad yep. thing. Yeah. And um, honestly, from what I've heard, it sounds amazing. It really sounds amazing, but incredible. The amps and whatnot, unf-withable. But having said that, every demonstration I've seen of the neural quad, it's incredibly prosaic, and and that is to say, it's it's a very conventional sounds, incredibly well done. Like the the heaviness, the tone of the, it's 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 phenomenal. The depth, the depth, I get it, but um, I'm sticking with the uh, the Line Six Helix, particularly because I appreciate the fact that they've really kept up with um, improving. Every every firmware update is a revelation. Every firmware update, they they've so vastly improved the product. It's not minor tweaks, right? No, no, it's not minor tweaks. And this this last uh, the three point one one, you know, this whole thing with the oversampling, I mean, it's amazing. It it's it's much quieter. Everything is smoother. The aliasing is it, you know for the the delays and the reverbs. It, it's it's a phenomenal thing. When I think about when the Helix Floor first came out, I remember going, this is okay. <laughs> it, was, it was like, it's okay. And then they came with like the version two and it was like, wow. Then they came with 250 where then it they added all their previous models. You know, all the stuff that I, that I love uh, from the XT Live. Right. Suddenly in there. And they kept, you know, and it, and it, uh, they, they kept going from strength to strength. And, and this last thing, you know, the dynamic hall, you know, the real rocker, you know, the, the um, rocker reels, you know, it's, uh, it's very, very cool. In fact, it's, you know, not that I'm caping for line six all of a sudden, but. Um, no, but it's a hell of an endorsement. This is what it's about. This is, no, you know, I, this makes us all want to dive deeper into it. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of like, you know, they're fractal partisans. You know, I, I uh, right. have one of their early uh, units, uh, Axe FX Ultra, mm -hmm. and it sounds great. It's, it was a great sounding thing. I, I didn't appreciate the fact that they kind of abandoned it. You know, it became like I just got the product and it became a legacy product. And I was like, right. what? Right. You know, um, and I didn't like the programming environment. Um, but it, that's all very subjective. Um you know, I uh, am a Kemper. I like the Kemper. I think the Kemper is good. I think the Kemper's got some cool. I think Kemper's has a unique approach to effects. It's a singular approach. You know, it's cool. But um, but um, no, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty really into the program being uh, programming um, this, these uh, Helix 
Helix six. Anyway, nice. I'm gonna well, go. Like, no, but like you said, with <laughs> with the with the Helix, you know, they even Line Six had had abandoned an entire slew of presets and products that that preceded the Helix until they realized that everybody broke their balls enough that they wanted that stuff in yeah. the Helix and then boom, it pops up yeah. and now you've got everything. Yeah. And I think too many companies out there try and go, okay, how do we reinvent ourselves instead of how do we just, you know, add to. It's one of the, it's one of the only circumstances where a company's been acquired because mm-hmm. you know, they were acquired by Yamaha. Yamaha. Yep. Yeah. And the fact that they were acquired by Yamaha, they've managed to maintain their culture and they've clearly been given additional resources. You know, for yeah. their Those, they got a lot of the Harmon guys that were working right. on Digitech. Right. So, you know, and Digitech, I mean, let's, you know, don't even get me started, man. I mean, Digitech what a phenomenal company, you know, phenomenal in the whammy pedal. Like so many of, you know, like the space station, you know, so many amazing products. Um, Stay I, tuned. There, there's more to come there. I, I would like to see. Well, you know, it was, it was so, uh, you know, I was talking to my friend Tom Cram, you know. Yeah, love and, Tom. And Tom is a good dude. And, you know, Tom has started his um, spiral boutique pedal line. Yeah. And and I remember he would you know he was saying oh they're go- they're going to reissue the space station they're going to do they were going to do a reissue of the space station, and I was really excited about it because um, you know nobody that that pedal does a particular thing with with pitch with you know, kind of backwards tape effects and that's really unique unto itself except for you know Red Panda with Tensor Tensor actually has one aspect of the space station pretty pretty well down but um but yeah man i i thought that the uh their their feed their um their um i forget the name of the pedal the one that gives you instant feedback oh yeah the um wow freak I'm, out? I'm gonna get fired for not yeah, fe- the, freak the, the freak out the freak out the freak, yeah. out. The freak out i got from a, you what a, yeah. the freak out is is a phenomenal product it's phenomenal it's phenomenal. I mean, I mean, and it's funny because um, at one point, you know, the freakouts were selling for almost just almost less than a hundred dollars on reverb. I mean, it was I was like, what? Now they're 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 getting up there, but the freakout is utterly unique. Uh, you know, it's like having an Ebo in a pedal. You know, it's in a, a weird, fun pedal. It's a that phenomenal is a fun it's pedal. A, it's a, it's a really great. Um, you know, the conceptually, a Digitech was very ahead and um this whole thing with samsung you know i I hope that they work that out because or 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 they start to realize the importance of the asset they have in digitech it's just a great uh, american effects company well i can tell you that obviously being the the exclusive distributor for it we we have actually just even in the recent weeks have had some really heavy meetings with them (laughs) about opportunities and there there's going to be some stuff coming down the pike definitely that's you, good you that's haven't good. seen the last of new product that's for okay sure. well that's good because you know because they're really really extraordinarily innovative yeah. in the space you know i mean like you know if you think about it you know is them you know even tied incredibly creative in the space now there there are great you know um 
kind of small running boutique players, you know. I mean, I talk about Red Panda is one. Chase Bliss, they're doing phenomenal stuff. Alexander and Disaster Area, they're, you know, um, doing great work. Um, you know, that's that's what's happening right about now. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is where you're in a, in, a, in a crazy kind of quasi-golden age of weird sounds that, 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 that everybody scratches their heads like, what? So what you're saying is you can't pick a pedal. <laughs> you know what I'm I, said, I, I said the Helix Stomp, and I, I, you know, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You know what I mean? Which, 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 interestingly enough, you know, Earthquaker devices, you know, they, they they're doing good stuff, man. It's great stuff. Well, you know what? That's that's all for another convo. I think I it is. So, do we have your commitment? You you'll come back. We'll do another one of these. I things? will. I will come back and and we'll talk about. Um, the, the weird, the obscure, the bizarre. Sounds I'd good. I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, it's it is a you know I mean like just going down the rabbit hole of, you know, talking about Adrian Blue and you, Steve Stevens, phenomenal in terms of beast guitar player, but really what he did with Billy Idol, you know, is very important work. You know, because For that sure. that whole thing of a punk and having a guitar virtuoso in a punk context. You know, it was um, punk slash new wave context. Very important for further developments down the road. Anyway. Agreed. <laughs> Vernon, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to doing this again. Oh, yeah, man. This is fun. This is fun. And all of our listeners out there, we appreciate your support. And uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to the next one. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. All right. Rock Bye. on. Yeah, all right, guys. <laughs>